Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Please sign up for my newsletter at zibbyowens.com for weekly updates about my podcasts, events, and more. Also, follow me on Instagram at zibbyowens and also at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. And finally, join my virtual book club called Zibby's Virtual Book Club, which meets every other Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time until 3 p.m. and features half an hour of book club discussion, followed by 30 minutes of Q&A with the author whose book we've just discussed. You can sign up on my website, zibbyowens.com, under the virtual book club section, or even on Instagram under the link in my bio. I hope you'll find me in all these different channels and enjoy this podcast. Hi, I don't know if you guys know this or not, but I have an anthology coming out called Moms Don't Have Time 2, a quarantine anthology. And it comes out on February 16th and has essays by 60 plus of the authors who have been on this podcast. So first of all, please pre-order this book. I think you will love it. I'm so excited about all the authors who are represented. Um, just to give you a few, um, Chris Bajalian, uh, Jewel Parker Rhodes, Ashley Prentice Norton, Gretchen Rubin, Rima Zaman, Eileen Zimmerman. And that is just from the first page of the multi-page table of contents. So please pick up this book, Moms Don't Have Time To, a quarantine anthology. It's available anywhere you buy books, Amazon, bookshop.org, and your local independent bookstore. So please pick up a copy. And also, I want to invite you listeners to my um, fundraiser slash launch party the night it comes out on February 16th, a Tuesday at 7 p.m., Bookhampton and the Children's Museum of the East End are co-hosting it for me. And 50 of the authors who wrote essays in this book, as well as many of the amazing authors who blurbed this book, um, who wrote little praiseworthy quotes at the, at the front, will be there. And you can be there too. So if you go to my website, zibbyowens.com, and just click on Anthology and go to Book Tour, you will see um, a whole fundraiser section. And for $50, um, you can attend. You'll get a copy of the book, and you'll get to schmooze on Zoom with all of these amazing authors. This is like going to be the literary happening of February. So please come. I would love to see you all in person on Zoom, I guess, but even see some of your faces. I know so many of you are really loyal listeners, and that makes me really happy. All proceeds of the book and the fundraiser are going to the Susan Felice Owens Program for COVID-19 Vaccine Research at Mount Sinai Health System. And it is named after my husband's mother, who passed away from COVID over the summer, which many of you followed along on Instagram as I uh, recounted that horrific experience. So all the proceeds are going there. The cost includes the price of a book. So thank you for supporting this effort and for supporting my book. I can't wait to see you there. Today's episode is brought to you by Page and Pairing. Page and Pairing is the weekly email that brings you book wine, and recipe recommendations, plus exclusive perks like author interviews and essays, music playlists, and writing tips. Sign up for free at pageandpairing.com. And if you're tired of wondering what to read, drink, and cook, Page and Pairing does it all for you, dropping all three into your inbox. Books are definitely better when paired with great wine and delicious food. So Page and Pairing is the weekly email that brings you all three curated for your pleasure and dropped in your inbox. Again, sign up for free at pageandpairing.com. 
Sarah Faith Alterman is a Bostonian at heart and a San Franciscan at present. She's written for the New York Times, McSweeney's, and the Boston Globe, as well as the anthologies Modern Loss, Candid Conversations About Grief, and Not Quite What I Was Planning, Six Word Memoirs by Writers Famous and Obscure. Sarah also produces Mortified, the acclaimed stage show podcast, and Netflix series that features adults reading from their cringeworthy teenage diaries. Let's Never Talk About This Again is her third book. Welcome, Sarah. Thanks so much for coming on Moms. <laughs> Thanks for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. <laughs> sure. Thanks for having me. I do know the name of my podcast. I think. I think. I just, you know. <laughs> we are all scrambling day to day to just turn our brains on. I wouldn't worry about it. Just say some crazy stuff. It's fine. Awesome. So can you please tell listeners what your book is about and what inspired you to write it? Yes. My book is called Let's Never Talk About This Again. And it is about my relationship with my father, who was a very strict sort of vanilla person who (laughs) did not want us to see anything that was beyond sort of G-rated. And then as it turns out, had a secret career writing sex books and not like clinical textbooks, but very body 1970s, like borderline porno books. So it's about my And I found those books when I was a little girl and they taught me about sex and all kinds of other stuff. So it is about my relationship with my dad and trying to sort of reconcile these two dads that I knew about from a young age. And then when he was in his mid sixties, he developed Alzheimer's disease. And suddenly we had never acknowledged these books at all. And suddenly we were talking about them all the time. So it is about that journey. (laughs) You do do Um, such a good job, by the way, of like, taking us with you. Well, first you like introduce us to your family so well that I feel like I totally get your dad and you and the whole relationship and the puns and all the rest. And then you see you like going in and getting your Sesame Street cookbook, which by the way, I would really like to see what a Snuffleupagus meatball is or whatever it was that you were making. It sounds like horrific, (laughs) but I'll just leave that alone. (laughs) And you're like finally tall enough to reach the secret stash of books. And then you talk about it in the book. And then at the end of the chapter, you're like, and then we, I never talked about it for 25 years. Like what? Yep. How is that possible? Tell me about that. Well, yeah. So my parents had what we called the duck room because my mother had tricked it out with all kinds of duck paraphernalia for no reason. And it wasn't cartoonish. It was like tasteful ducks. So we had wallpaper that had sort of a mallard pattern on it. And we had, you know, chairs that were upholstered in very New Englandy sort of dainty duck patterns. And then we had a little phone shaped like a duck. It was no reason. So we called it the duck room and we had these built-in bookshelves at the back of the room. And so they had sort of like waist high for an adult anyway, cabinets with a counter. And then you could climb up on top of them and look through the books. And my brother and I would do that all the time because we kept some of our books there, like my Sesame Street cookbook, as you mentioned, and some of my parents' stuff, like their yearbooks from high school and my mom's novels, my dad's crime, just all sort of friendly stuff. And I couldn't reach the top shelf till I was like probably like nine, eight or nine. And one day I, when I realized I could reach the top shelf, I just was like, oh, well, everything else is for me. Let's see what's up here for me. And I found like crammed into the corner, this stack of sort of large format paperbacks. And I pulled them out thinking, okay, clearly this is fine. And the, the first one had a cartoon cat on it that looked a lot like Garfield. And so I thought, oh, this is like comic strips. And I opened it up. It was called Games You Can Play With Your Pussy. And being a little girl... I was like, yeah, cat book. 
obviously. <laughs> so I opened it up and it was very clear very quickly that it wasn't really about cats, but I couldn't understand what I was missing. And then I kept looking through the stack and I found all these different sex manuals that were, again, not clinical. They were sort of jokey and they had cartoons. So like these big breasted women sitting on men's laps and all kinds of sort of like panting, sweating people mashed up together. And I did not understand what was going on. And then I found some that were kind of more and more risque. And so like once I started to see naked real people, I thought, okay, this is like something I'm not supposed to be looking at. Definitely. And they made me uncomfortable, but also a little turned on, which is weird. And then I saw my dad's name as the author on these books. And it was just like this moment where again, I didn't quite know what I was looking at, but I knew it was weird. And I put the books away and then I just was so uncomfortable bringing it up to my father that I never brought it up ever until, you know, he was in his sixties. And, you know, that was partly because actually it was entirely because my dad was so G-rated and we were not allowed to even watch kissing scenes on TV. And, you know, if he saw people kissing like out in public, he would make a huge scene to just like push us out of the way or like create some sort of distraction by dropping something. It was very cartoonish. And so I knew, oh my God, if I tell my dad, one, that I was looking around and stuff that I wasn't supposed to look at, and two, that had to do with sex or even kissing in any way, I was going to get either in trouble or he was just going to freak out. And so I just like put it aside and never mentioned it. And we had that kind of relationship throughout my whole life. I mean, when I told my parents that I was pregnant with my son, I was very uncomfortable telling them because it was like acknowledging that I was having sex. Even though I was like 34 and married, I still was like, oh God, I have to acknowledge that my husband and I have been like putting our parts together in a way that made a baby. So it was sort of defines our relationship, I think. I can talk about this forever. Yeah, no, this is great. <laughs> Ironically, I can talk about great. this forever. It makes my never role here very easy. I just get to hang out and watch. <laughs> you relax. Yeah, I, I, here, I have a coffee right here. Thank you. I'm just going to, you know, settle in. I was surprised at the, t- at the time that you didn't tell your brother because it seemed like you guys are pretty close, but you kept that aside. Did you debate telling him? He was a couple years younger. He is a couple years younger than I am. And so when I found the books, I was very young and I just didn't think it was something that he could wrap his head around either. But it it wasn't just that I was uncomfortable talking about sex with my parents or kissing with my parents. It was just kind of talking about it in general. And so even when I was a teenager and you know got involved with the guy that I ultimately lost my virginity to and sort of did all the firsts with we never, I couldn't articulate to him like anything at all besides, and this is weird, but I learned a lot of my like sexy talk from my dad's books, oh my which is really messed up. Not only because that's gross and terrible, but also these books were written largely in the seventies. And so I was a teenager in the nineties and, you know, a 16 year old girl talking like a porny woman in the seventies. It's like very bizarre, like wrong way to talk in general. And so I just couldn't talk about sex without feeling uncomfortable in any way. And I think in part because I conflated it with my dad and with his books. And so I didn't bring it up to my brother, probably for the same reasons I didn't bring it up to anyone because I just couldn't <laughs> couldn't say you know sexy or sexual words without getting super uncomfortable. It's been I I still feel that way a little bit, which is funny because I'm in my forties. And and you're talking about a book that has this like all over the place. You like wrote a whole book about it. It's like it's coming out now. (laughs) 
here it is. Warts and all. Oh, warts is a weird thing to say when you're talking about sex. Not warts, all the things. But I really struggled and still sort of struggle with talking about sex in a matter of fact way. I think that I always kind of joked about it because I was uncomfortable. And actually that's a note I got again and again from my editor on this book. She'd be like, there's too many puns. I can tell you're uncomfortable. You're writing like a 50 year old Jewish man. Like you got to pull back on it, on the borscht belty stuff about sex a little bit. Because I, again, would sort of make innuendo or kind of like jokey jokes about penises or whatever. And she was like, we're all adults. So you got to just you got to move past it. And so, you know, editor, editor as therapist, if you will. I feel like they all, they always are. <laughs> you have to really, especially when you're writing memoir, you have to allow yourself to be vulnerable, even when it's really uncomfortable. And I would get on the phone with her. And of course, this is about the illness and death of my father. And so it was a really, I mean, obviously for most people, it is a really difficult topic. And so I would get in a zone where I would be writing about some of the harder scenes, like when he was ill or when he was dying, which is not a spoiler because I I think the second sentence of the whole book says that my father died. So hopefully no one feels spoiled, but I would call her and we'd have to talk through these scenes and I would have to really be honest with her and, you know, again, vulnerable in a way that I hadn't really been with anyone else, even my husband. And so she would listen and she would, to her credit, be very sympathetic, but also give me wonderful advice on how to write about something painful, which I imagine is a really hard position to be in because you're trying to comfort someone, but also critique them and kind of like emotionally cradle them through a difficult time, but still focus them in a productive direction. So I give her a ton of credit. This would have been a totally different book without her. And what made you start writing memoir and personal essay, like all that? When did you start doing all of that? So I have a background in sketch comedy and also in producing and storytelling shows. So one of my jobs is I produce, or one of the producers on a show called Mortified. It is a live stage show where adults read from their teenage journals, like to the great embarrassment of themselves and like the delight of an audience. So I have spent many years performing myself in this show, but also working with people to go through their diaries to pull out the funniest and yet also most vulnerable parts to make a story. So a lot of people think that Mortified, who've heard of Mortified, think that it's like an open mic. You just kind of show up and read your diary, but it's actually really curated. We don't make anything up, but we want to make sure that what's coming out of the mouth of a performer is relatable to and funny for an audience. So I've been, let's see, doing that show for about 12 years, I think, as a producer. And so I've spent over a decade working with people to tell their own stories. So have, and like I said, so you've I, read how many, you have read all those people's diaries essentially. Yeah. I like hundreds of oh diaries. My gosh. And it's amazing that people turn their diaries over to me again, in that sort of same relationship that I have with my editor, Suzanne, it's a real relationship built on trust and compassion and, you know, belief that I'm not going to exploit them in some way. And so being on the editorial side of that, but also the performer side of that, it just felt natural to start telling my own story because I help other people tell their own stories. And actually this book came from, well, obviously it came from my life, but the idea for the book originally was from my performing at a storytelling show in San Francisco that's called Body Storytelling, B-A-W-D-Y, that is a sex storytelling show. And I, being really uncomfortable talking about sex, especially in public, 
did not want to do this show, but I know the creator who's an amazing woman, her name's Dixie De La Tour, and she was trying to get me on the show for years. And so after my dad died, I just felt compelled to talk about him and talk about his books to try and keep him alive a little bit. And so I did a show where I told an abridged version of this story and the audience really liked it. Not, not to like, yeah. but we really liked it. And I ended up from there crafting a book proposal because I've written two other books like in my early twenties and I have the same literary agent as I had. I mean, she's been my agent for almost 20 years at this point. So I had talked to her about, Hey, I'm thinking about I don't know, like this germ of a book idea. Here's the audio of a storytelling show that I did. What do you think? And she was like, this is the one. (laughs) So it sort of began as me trying to vomit out my feelings on stage. And then from there, over the course of a couple of years, you know, I ended up shaping into a book. And I feel like I am a talker when it comes to writing. I get asked about my writing process a lot. I don't know why I'm doing quotes. I get asked about my writing process a lot. And (laughs) for me, it's really talking out loud. Like I will monologue alone in a room to kind of get out what is in my head and I work a story out out loud. And then sometimes I'll record it, but sometimes not. And only when it feels good coming out of my mouth, that's when I sit down and actually write it. And so, you know, taking the, the story from the stage to the page kind of made a lot of sense to me. Wow. I feel like I'm the exact opposite of you. Like I can't even get a coherent sentence out until I write it down first. The idea of like, I'm just going to try to randomly talk and maybe that will lead to something I write is is like, (laughs) I have so much respect for you for being able to do it that way. Thank you. I mean, as you can probably tell, I am a talker. I can just go and go and go. And I don't know, there's something about talking out loud that for me helps me find the cadence of a sentence. And so that's just kind of how it, how it worked out. I don't know. I think anytime I've tried to really sit down and focus and write by sitting at the computer, it's just not successful for me. So I have to either talk out loud or handwrite. I would go, when I was writing this book, I would take a notebook and go to a coffee shop. And I live in the San Francisco Bay area, which is like tech central. And so I'd go to a coffee shop and there would be everyone on their computers. Some tables would be, you know, dudes, it's always dudes, you know, talking about their startup and how they're going to get funding. I was just surrounded by technology and I would be writing on my notebook. And I got a lot of strange looks because I was just like, probably looked like I was writing in a diary or something, but that's how I have to do it. I don't know. It's just, it's how it's what happened. I'm not sure why. That's great. I mean, whatever works, it's art. You know, it, this is like an art form. So you do it however you do it. There's no right way or wrong way. Tell me a little, I read your New York Times article about how when you were pregnant with the ice cream and the Mr. Misty or whatever it was, and then you were pregnant as your father was sort of descending rapidly into Alzheimer's and your belly was expanding out. It was such a powerful sort of visual as both of you sort of expand and contract at the same time. Tell me about that experience and what it was like having to cope with something so traumatic while going through something physically very traumatic in a way too. So it was traumatic, both things. I mean, I talk about this pretty candidly in the book, but I did not want to have children. And it's not as though I had my son against my will. It was just more, it took a lot of convincing and I had my reasons for not wanting kids. And my husband had his reasons for wanting kids. And so it was like a big decision that we made and it happened really quickly. I'd gone to my 
OB. I think I was, I was 34 and she had said, you know, it's going to take a while. Usually women in their mid to late thirties, you know, it's a process. So in a year or two, when you're not pregnant, come back to me. And I was like, yeah, I have a year or two. This is great. And then I got pregnant very quickly and it was upsetting, which is, I think some people probably think that's a horrible thing to say, but it, it was upsetting. It's not what I, I wasn't ready. And so I was already coping with the emotional trauma of coming to terms with the fact that I was going to be a mom before I was ready. And the physical trauma, you have four children, you understand of your body just taking over and there's nothing that you can do. And this little like creature inside of you, this little vampire creature just kind of sucking everything out of you. So that was hard. And my father was diagnosed right around the time that I found out that I was pregnant. And so I was dealing with the trauma of accepting that I was going to be a mom, you know, the trauma of accepting that my father was dying. It was a lot. And I was sort of growing this baby as my father was becoming more of a baby, which was profound in a way that I have a hard time articulating. And so that process was just trying to focus on the good and the beauty of both experiences. You know, I tried really hard to focus on the beauty of growing a child and the beauty of having an expiration date on my relationship with my father and saying all the things that we never said and really kind of treasuring our time together in a way that I don't think I would have. I mean, I always treasure my time with my parents, but it just felt like, okay, every moment, every conversation, I really need to be the best that I can because you know, I'm not, I don't know how much longer I'm going to have these conversations with my dad. And how did your mom and your brother, like how did other people in your life respond to this book? And even just this piece of your dad coming out? My whole family has been on board since the beginning. So I know a lot of memoirs or there are memoirs in the world that are salacious and kind of tell all. And I didn't want to write a salacious book. And I also am really uncomfortable writing about someone without having their permission, especially my mom and my brother and my husband. And so they all gave me their permission ahead of time to even write the book. And then they were really instrumental in helping me recreate, not recreate, but help me remember things that had happened. And they all kind of signed off on the book before I submitted it. And so, you know, I want, especially my husband, because so much of the book is about our developing relationship. And so we spent a lot of time talking about, oh, remember when we went on this camping trip together, remember the lead up to our wedding. And we would sort of work together to make sure that I was remembering things correctly and also representing him in a way that he felt was accurate. So I did that with my mom and brother as well. And there were a couple of things that people were uncomfortable with. And so I just took them out or I changed the way that I talked about them because I wanted everyone to be on board with this book. I don't think that I could be comfortable with myself if I had written something kind of despite other people's opinions. I mean, not despite my family's opinions. So they were happy. My brother <laughs> is a very, what's the word I want to find? He is someone who's very stoic and does not really talk about feelings. He was in the military, so I'm sure that's part of it. And so I sent him the book and he texted me a thumbs up <laughs> emoji and that was it. <laughs> so, I mean, I guess I have his sign off. Um, and my husband really loved it and my mom was really proud and she feels like it is an homage to my dad and that's it. I mean, um, what more I wanted. Honestly. And it was one of the time books of the year. That was awesome. Thank you. Yeah. Amazing. I was totally floored and grateful, especially because this year, so many incredible books came out. I mean, you've interviewed so many of the authors of the incredible books that came out this year and plus what a year, right? And so what a garbage year 
for so many reasons. And so it just, I felt really grateful for having that, you know, having that exposure or having validation from a publication that I really respect. I wonder sometimes, I mean, we spend, we all collectively spend so much time bashing 2020, you know, myself included, can't wait for 2021, blah, 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 blah. But what if like, I mean, we'll all remember it. Do you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. I just wonder in a decade, I mean, obviously, you know, you take some parts of memory with you and others you forget, you know, like having a kid, like that whole thing. But <laughs> I don't know. I mean, of course they're like on a national scale, it's been horrific and there have been like horrific personal things, but I don't know. I just wonder looking back, was it the year that you end up, will, will, will people say like, wow, that's actually the year I ended up like repairing these relationships with these people and reprioritizing my life. And I don't know. I just wonder, but food for thought. <laughs> I completely agree with you. And I sometimes feel a little guilty talking about silver linings that I have found because the year has been so difficult and painful for everybody, but to some people, especially in a horrifying degree, to a horrifying degree. And I feel so bad for my older son because I'm like constantly trying to find silver linings amid his existence, as I mentioned before. But you know, he's, I've had so much time with him this year that I would not have had. And I mean, sometimes it's awful and stressful and difficult, but sometimes when I'm really getting down about this year, my husband will say, listen, Colin, my oldest, is going to look back on this. And remember, he just gets to be with mom and dad all the time and he's going to be happy. And so I've really hung on to that and hung on to getting to know him and my youngest, who's almost two, in, in being around for him in a way that I was not around for my older one when he was the same age. So I've been trying to hold on to that. Colin, my oldest is also really asthmatic. And so whenever he gets what would to other kids be a little cold, it's always emergency level. He's never had a little cold. It's always a horrible respiratory infection that lands us in the hospital. And he has not been sick since February, which is literally the entire, it's the longest he has not been sick in his entire life. And so for me, COVID is extra scary because I have a little kid that is high risk and he has not even had a little, he hasn't had anything. I mean, it's been incredible. So for me, those are the silver linings that I try to really hang on to because being a mom, even though I was so reluctant to become one has become a huge part of my identity. And the thing that I am the proudest of is my relationship with my kids and that they seem to be turning out to not be sociopaths. Those are the things that, yeah, I hope to look back on 2020 and remember the good that came out of it for my family. Might as well. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) You referenced earlier when we were chatting that you have one writing project that you're working on, but otherwise your your stuff is sort of on hold. Can you talk at all about that writing project or not really? A little bit. So I have been working on adapting my book for television for a couple of years. I sold the option for the book at the same time as selling the book itself. So I actually wrote a TV pilot and a book at the same time and was also pregnant with my youngest son. So it was a very intense time. So I can't talk too much about it, but the book has been, is in development for television and that's been a ride. It's been wild. So I've been sort of focusing all of my energy lately on, on that. It's really exciting. That's great. Thank you. I'm excited. Um, I also have started very tentatively to put together an outline for another book, which I think is also going to be memoir about a time in my life that was bonkers, which was right after undergrad, I moved to Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, which is like a spring break. I, I was there for uh, my graduation 
retreat with my whole, you know, college class. Anyway, go ahead. So you'll understand why to me, it's funny anyway, that I moved to Myrtle beach in an effort to like really find myself and figure out what I wanted to do with my life. And other people were going there to just like get wasted and party. And so the book right now, like the germ of an idea is, is a memoir about, yeah, the search for finding yourself or like the effort to find yourself in a place where people go to lose themselves. I have like wild stories and it'll be personal and vulnerable, maybe not to the same degree that this book is, but it was just a wild time in my life, but a wild time in a way that Myrtle Beach is like a different, different wildness than Myrtle Beach is for other people. Yeah. So it's like, yeah. it's like going on a yoga retreat to Daytona Beach or something, right? It's like something that's like, so not what you imagine when you think of a place. It's great. I love it. Like AC. Okay. Yeah. That's awesome. Crazy. Thank you. Yeah. So that's what I'm doing and just momming. <laughs> <laughs> As you know. Well, I really love the way you write. And obviously I can tell now you write the way you speak, which is even better, which I guess means I like the way you think in general, which sounds weird to say to somebody else, but I feel like you could write a book about anything. Do you know what I mean? Like you're just describing your point of view of experiences. I'm sure you'll have lots more books coming out of you over the years, but do you have any advice for aspiring authors? Yes. Two pieces of advice. The first piece is don't be afraid to be vulnerable, which I know I've talked about a lot already in this conversation. But for me, it was a huge revelation to just lean into pieces of my life or pieces of my story that I didn't want to write about. I ultimately realized, okay, those are the pieces that are the most interesting, or at least the most compelling. You know, Don't back off of an idea or of a sentence or a story just because it makes you feel uncomfortable. Because often I, I think that's where the best stuff comes from. And also don't be afraid to suck. I mean, I have gotten in my own way so many times just ripping a page out or, you know, deleting a bunch of stuff because I thought, oh, this is garbage. And then you just I get up and walk away. Right. And I think because I would reread something that I wrote first draft and think this is a piece of, I'm not going to swear, but this is a garbage sentence. I'm done. And if I had just continued to erase things rather than put them out in the world, I don't think the book would be where it is. What am I saying? Don't be afraid to suck because your first draft, two drafts, five drafts are going to suck, but they are part of the process of getting to the draft that is good. I mean, I wrote this book. I probably wrote three full drafts of this book. The first draft was a totally different book. It felt different. There were different stories, the same characters, but a few extras. It was very dark and morose in a way that didn't feel good, but just felt like this is what's coming out right now. It was awful. And my editor was incredible at being shiny about her critique that it was terrible. I put this in the acknowledgements, but I made a lot of jokes about like murder and death and like trying to be funny. haha. And she was like, this is not good. So then the next draft wasn't great either, but you know, they were like stepping stones to getting to what the book is now. And if I hadn't accepted my suckiness, I don't think that I would have been able to polish stuff into the final version. So don't be afraid to be vulnerable and don't be afraid to suck because both of those things will lead to greatness. Love it. Thank you. Thanks, Sarah. This was such a fun conversation. And now I have to go back and like watch your show and stockpile (laughs) from all your productions and everything. But anyway, I'm really glad we connected. Thanks so much for having me. My pleasure. Good luck with everything. Bye. 
thanks to pageandpairing.com for sponsoring today's episode. Go check them out, pageandpairing.com, the weekly email that brings you book, wine, and recipe recommendations. And just a reminder again, please pre-order a copy of my book, Moms Don't Have Time To, a quarantine anthology, and go to my website under the anthology tab for the fundraiser, and I hope you'll buy a ticket and join me for, and I should have mentioned, um, all proceeds go to COVID-19 research. So please join me for the fundraiser. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time To Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. 